Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm here with uh, my good friend, Carlos Steele, who was the founder of the most iconic boutique in my life uh, called Atelier. Um in New York, and really one of the reasons I wanted to record the first podcast with Carlo, one of the first podcasts, was that what Carlo did with Atelier in real life and in retail space is similar to what Stalzeitgeist did as a forum in cyberspace. And for me, Atelier... Uh, I've discovered a lot of things there. And for me, it was sort of a temple of retail uh, where I could go and, uh, you know, speak with Carlo or speak with his salespeople about fashion I loved. And I think Atelier was instrumental in creating what's now called the fashion avant-garde, especially in menswear. Uh, with the guys like Carol Christian Powell on Carpe Diem on one side and uh, Rick Owens and Yoji Yamamoto on the other side. It was really a store that was instrumental in cohering that aesthetic into and solidifying into something that was uh, palpable and just there uh, to be understood but really that a store that brought it all together, all the disparate elements. And for, for me, someone who fell in love with fashion, uh, with this fashion, with this rock and roll, gothy band, uh, this was really the place to go. And it took me, Carlo, a long time to find Atelier. <laughs> you did not make it easy on anyone. Uh, and I read about Atelier in Surface magazine. I remember it clear as a day. There was a magazine called Surface out of San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. And in one of the issues on the last page, there was like a little paragraph. There was a store opening. It was called A uh, back then somewhere in Soho, and it will carry the likes of Ralph Simmons and uh, Andy Millimister and so on. And I just went gaga for that because, I don't know, Carlo, if you remember or no, but at the time, it seems like overnight, everyone in New York dropped uh, Andy Millimister. Ralph Simmons was nowhere to be found, I think, only... Barney's had it uptown and maybe seven had it on the Lower East Side. No one else. And the store comes along and is nowhere to be found. (laughs) (laughs) And I walk up and down the streets of Soho, I kid you not, looking for that store until one day I'm on Crosby Street and I went into a housing works bookstore and cafe where uh, I would go sometimes, you know, it, it's a charity that supports homeless shelters. And I would go in there and buy books and get a coffee. And I'm walking out of the store and I look across the street 
and I see just a window with two mannequins in. And what I see on the mannequins, I was like, that is A. 100%, I found it. I walked in. Uh, you weren't there. I was. I dealt with JoJo. And uh, on the spot, I bought a black knit turtleneck sweater by Javier Delcor, a Belgian designer who is uh, out of business like, like so many. And yeah, it's a love affair. Love at first sight. And I kept going back. And uh, I still have that sweater. I still get compliments on it. And I still have a few other things I bought over the years. That's great. <laughs> so, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do, and uh, listeners, I, I want to tell you that I'm going to bring Carlo back on this podcast uh, over and over again, because over the years of knowing Carlo, this is the one guy with whom we've had incredible conversations about fashion. I mean, the guy with encyclopedic knowledge that's only matched by his passion. And so we're going to get into different things, but I thought for the first one, we should talk about the ethos of menswear avant-garde and the role uh, Atelier played in it, because that is still alive. And even though the generations have turned and you now got like 2 million kids who have know that there's this guy out there, Carl Christian Powell, and he's like some, uh, you know, magic elf making incredible things somewhere in the cave in Milano, but they really learned it from Instagram, you know, so uh, it's good to drop some wisdom on people's heads. But uh, let's begin at the beginning, you know, how did you conceive of Atelier? And I know you weren't even in New York, uh, or were you already? Because you were in San Francisco before that, right? How, how yeah, did the idea come about? Okay, so um, uh, I was working for, I was a menswear specialist for Hugo Boss. And I was stationed at uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. Uh, they were a great company to work for, at the time anyway. And um, But I really hated working at Saks Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and uh, I, it, was, it was pretty dreadful. The... Um, um, I had a business partner and life partner, and I would often complain to him, Constantine, which some of you may or may not know. Um, I would often uh, complain about how miserable I was. And uh, Constantine said, well, you know, um, maybe we should do something on our own. You know, I can see that you have a real passion for this, and maybe this is something you should um, explore. So, um, yeah, that's how we decided uh, to, to open Atelier. Um, I quit my job and we sort of did a, a survey, a boutique survey from uh, Vienna to Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, I also want to include, too, that at the time my partner was... Um, uh, had an antiques business. So it was uh, a combination of uh, um, buying trip for, for him, um, holidays for us, and market research. So we visited a lot of capitals and, and checked out a lot of different stores. And um, 
yeah, that was sort of how I got the uh, the knowledge of what to do um, for atelier. Um, there was a there was something that I decided to um, do, and that was to group like-minded brands together. So instead of having Anne de Mulemeester and Armani, I'm, I'm just starting with the letter A. <laughs> uh, um, I just decided to, you know, exclude Armani. Now, mind you, I, I want to say that I, I don't have anything against Armani. I think that what he did for, for fashion was nothing short of revolutionary, especially menswear. Sure. Um, I love his work. Um, but um, it, it simply wasn't where my head was at the time. So um, yeah, that was uh, that was the that was the beginning. Mm. And we're talking about uh, Atelier opened in two thousand and two. Two thousand two, right? So so it took a year of planning. Um, we started to do the research at the end of uh, two thousand uh, and finished. I think it was sort of middle two thousand one. Mm. Did so. uh, did nine eleven affect you in any way? No, no, not at all. Okay, mm -mm. so you, you just, you know, you did not scrap your plans. No, no. Because no. mm -mm. I guess it's, I'm going off tangent, but it's a bit related to what we're going through now, right? When, when there was a little bit, there was a time of uncertainty, uh, for sure. But how, you know, did you have a specific view on fashion of what was happening in fashion at the time what was happening in retail in new york at the time or in general like what what, what were the ideas that were swirling in your head so it was it was definitely about a, a specific point of view of fashion um i wanted to put something together that basically reflected my interest i mean that may sound um a bit cheeky and, and terribly personal, but it, it really was that at the beginning. It was the, the brands that I thought were most interesting um, and um, um, and most directional. So, you, you know, in order to put this within a context, you know, a lot of Atelier was about the cult of Black, which, of course, you know, it's pretty obvious for anyone that knows what, what we did. Um, and that sort of obsession with black has a certain, uh, history with me. You know, it sort of goes back to, um, to the eighties when, um, I sort of fell in love with the Japanese designers and even a little bit before that, you know, uh, this, I sort of had this obsession with, you know, Andy Warhol and the, the Velvet Underground and, you know, that whole sort of amphetamine, black turtleneck, black sunglasses kind of thing. Stephen Sprouse sort of brought that out a bit in 1984 too. So I was watching all of this uh, through magazines and um, newspaper articles in New Orleans. So we're, we're talking the mid 80s. So um, that's sort of where this kind of obsession with the color black came from. Now, mind you, I didn't always wear black. You know, there was definitely... Um, moments where, you know, I uh, sort of uh, veered away from it, but it was always in the back of my head. There was um, other things that sort of led to uh, Atelier um, 
looking the way that it did because um, there were certain uh, magazines, there were certain uh, stylists, and there were certain designers whose work I was following all throughout the 90s. And they all sort of pointed to the same designers. So, you know, which was just the, the, the Helmut Langs and the Raph Simmons and the Andy Mulanises and what have you. And so uh, naturally, when I, when I decided to start uh, Atelier, those were the first brands that uh, I approached. Mm. Um, and so anything that was sort of, you know, black, edgy, and of course, if they had a, a Belgian name, that helped. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And same yeah. here as, as a customer. It, it does seem to me that you were starting really at the golden age of contemporary fashion, where there was so much creativity, you know, and that, that rock and roll punk spirit was, it seemed unstoppable. And mm-hmm. and fashion was cerebral. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, you know. Honestly, Eugene, I actually thought that I I, I got on that train a bit late. To be honest with you, mm. really, um, I thought the the real kickoff point for that was uh, spring summer '94, Helmut Lang. Yeah, and that that was the first season that uh, uh, with the collaboration with Melanie Ward. I thought that really was the beginning of the '90s, mm-hmm. and that sort of. You know, that kind of, um, what's the word? I mean, it, I guess it's sort of punky, a bit rock and roll, but a kind of authenticity, I guess, which, yeah. you know, it's a, that too is a really strange word, but yeah. I, I, I think you know what I mean. Um, you know, Andy Mulemeister was around before that, uh, and, you know, Martin Margiela was around before that too, but I think that sort of, that show sort of, um, uh, made an impact that couldn't be denied. It sort of solidified everything that was uh, sort of in the air. So by the time Atelier opened, you know, in, in 2002, you know, it, it felt a little bit, the story felt very familiar to me, mm-hmm. but it also felt a little like I, yeah, like I was sort of a Johnny come lately, <laughs> truthfully. Uh, well, not to, what, how old was I? 26? Uh, 28. Yeah, not th- not to this 28-year-old. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'll say, you know, yes, it did seem like a golden era uh, at the time. But again, like I said before, you know, we had stores dropping uh, these designers because they were not selling as well as they thought, and I think there's a, mm-hmm. a bit of a myth about New York being this super creative, super stylish city where this stuff just flies off the shelf. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'll tell you, because I would roll into Barney's at the end of the season and like grab whatever Ralph Simmons I could find at 70% off, and it was all there. There was like, yeah. you know, there was, I was like, a kid in a candy store is like, I'll take that for $50. Thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? for sure. And uh, it's kind of funny seeing all these like archival websites now run by like 25 year olds. When I think like, oh gosh, yeah, I had this, I had that. And, like I wore this or wore that. I don't know where it is now, but I did all of that. But anyway, uh, you know, how... Uh, so you, it, it seemed like there were a little 
maybe not at the beginning, but it seemed like there were two sides to the story. You know, there there was. Wait, wait. wait. Yeah. Let, let me let me interject something sure. here. Um, so this idea about uh, New York being a place of super creative people, super stylish people. Um, yes, it actually is that place. Um, but you have to know how to speak the language uh, of those people in order to capture their attention. I think one of the reasons why, uh, let's take Raph Simmons as an example, why Raph Simmons didn't work at a lot of places and it did work at Atelier was because we gave it a voice mm-hmm. and we eliminated, um, 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 we, we put it within a context, let's put it that way. Right. And so it could shine, you know, it, it, it also um, informed the, the customer that, you know, that Raph was also not a singular voice. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, we had so many brands that um, if to the untrained eye probably looked the same, you know, if someone were, were just to walk in and without any sort of knowledge of what Atelier was all about, they would probably think that, oh, it's all one brand, you know, because it was mostly all black. Um, um, that was also the... Um, that was also its strength. Mm. And I think that's what made people um, intrigued by what we did was that they could see that there was a, um, that it was sort of a genre, a style maybe. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, they, they, they did relate to it. I know I certainly did. And so yeah. what was your audience like as you were, yeah, they were, they were definitely creative professionals, creative professionals, unquestionably without a doubt. Yeah, people who who worked in creative industries, you know, um, pop stars, actors, uh, you know, stylists, people who worked in design, you know, people who were just in, really enthused about fashion, just people who were generally creative, even if they didn't really have a um, a job where they worked in a creative industry. You know, we also worked um, um, really hard to sort of build a community around Atelier. And it wasn't so much about selling. It was about um, making um, a place where like-minded people could sort of hang out and exchange ideas. Um, You know, those, uh, you know, we used to have clothes swapping parties, um, you know, um, on the sometimes on the weekends, Saturdays, you know, when we were closed and, you know, we would, you know, people would just stop in and we'd just sort of like, you know, party until like 11 o'clock at night. It was just like this little, you know, little fun thing, you know, and um, yeah, it was uh, and they. You know, everyone, I, I remember everyone being um, uh, creative on some level. Okay. So, yeah, the, the community aspect of Atelier, I, I certainly felt that because, you know, I was never the biggest client, but I never felt like I wasn't welcome there. Mm-hmm. And, that, mm-hmm. and that to me felt special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, what we proposed, um, was uh i think intimidating to a lot of people um and i think the way we presented ourselves um 
could also be uh, somewhat intimidating. And I sort of kept that in mind uh, with the store. So it was important that we were as friendly as possible to sort of offset that. I mean, it was never really, we never really set out for like a hard sell, you know? Right. Um, it was mostly about just, um, whilst educating might be a very big word, um, but just showing people what we thought was really interesting fashion. Yeah. You know, I, I also want to say something else too, is that, you know, not only did we um, talk to talk, but we also walked the walk. I mean, we, we, we wore the clothes. Right. You know, and... Um, you know, we sort of became known, at least in Soho, anyway. Of you know, oh, those guys in black. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> those are those those are those guys from that store that sells all those black clothes. Yeah, you know. And let, let's face it; I think that resonated with so many people because I see so mm -hmm. many stores where I walk in, and I feel like these guys' souls are not in it. You know. Yeah. And if they could be selling used cars tomorrow and making more money, they would. Yeah, you know, you know, um, I don't think that there was ever, maybe, maybe once or twice towards the, the latter years of Atelier, but certainly not on Crosby Street. There was never an interview for the sales associates. No one was ever interviewed. Hmm. You know, they sort of hung out, and they hung out long enough that I just said, well. I don't know, maybe we should just fold some sweaters or something. I don't know. And they just became our people, you yeah. know? Um, yeah, there was, um, they were intrigued. They were intrigued enough that they um, kept coming back. Yeah. So you have this, I think there are a couple of aspects to this aesthetic. You know, I, I think it's, of course, it's, it's very dark. There is a lot of black. It's kind of gothy, rock and roll, punk. All the elements are in it. There's also something cerebral about it. Um, and you have a lot of designers that people are aware who do runway shows, uh, like Anzibil Mister and Rick Owens. Uh, but you also had this artisanal side, which, if I remember correctly, the beginning was only Carol Christian Paul and Carpe Diem. Mm -hmm. right? So those were our, our very first accounts. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Yeah. So these are the first two labels you've secured. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why did you go after those? So um, I became aware of uh, Carol Christian Paul in the, the late 90s. This is when I was living in San Francisco. And I was working at Gianni Versace at the time. And there was, um, we used to receive these um, trade publications that, that came to the store. And it was sort of, I can't remember the name. And uh, um, during um, the runway season, they would show images of different brands. Um, they would also uh, take the piss out of certain brands too. <laughs> and, and one of the brands they took the piss out of was Carol Christian Paul. There was a photograph of a, of a man dressed, a model dressed in one of his, uh, in one of Carol's looks. And there was a circle drawn around it with an arrow pointing at it saying, you know, would you be caught dead in this or something along those lines? Yeah. And, and I remember 
thinking that um, it was an incredibly powerful image. Um, it had a lot to do, of course, with the with the shoulder. It was the the saddle shaped shoulder, which mm-hmm. you know in um, nineteen ninety eight. You know, I don't think that there was a single menswear brand out there that was toying with such things. Um, I was also in a band at that time, and and how I managed to do this full time thing and also be in a band, um, I'll never know. But we would tour uh the west coast and once when we were in um los angeles i stopped at maxfield maxfields and um i saw um a jacket by uh carol christian it was a leather crombie coat actually and i think the thing weighed about 50 pounds it was (laughs) you know (laughs) big and heavy um so you know at the time um you know being in a band you know there was a certain kind of you know pop rock and roll aesthetic that I was adhering to, which was about, you know, no food, you know, only cigarettes and chapstick. So I was, <laughs> I was very, very thin. And uh, when I tried the coat on, it fit me like a glove and I, I will never forget it. I mean, it was a very strict silhouette, very high arm hole and a very, very narrow sleeve. Um, and I was sort of, Transfixed. I'd, I'd never tried anything on that had that kind of almost militaristic kind of feel to it. You know, that this idea of creating uh, a silhouette that's sort of sharp and aloof and erect, you know, that kind of, you know, there was a certain feeling that went along with it. Yeah. Never forgotten about it. Uh, and so when we decided to uh, do Atelier, that was the first name on the list. You know, I, wow. I, I simply, yeah, I had to find out more about this person. This was pre-internet, so it wasn't right. Like, you right, know, I could, yeah. I could Google him or anything like that. So there was definitely some sleuthing involved. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine how you got, how you got that phone number, and carpet and carpet Zium, Do you remember how you came across that? Um, you know, I cannot remember. I really can't remember. I have a feeling that um, it was probably at Le Cleur in Paris. Okay. And I think it was probably something that Constantine brought home okay. uh, that I was intrigued with. Um, but really, it's it's lost yeah. to yeah, the, yeah. the... Yeah. What, did, what, uh, what attracted you to Carpet Zian? Um, so, you know, it's interesting, um, two things. Um, I loved this idea that clothing could have this sort of built in history, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when it comes to the look of the garment. And I also loved this idea that there was a, a brand, a menswear brand that was sort of rooted in workwear as opposed to tailoring mm-hmm. you know you know carol christian pole and carpe diem were sort of the the polar opposites of that kind of artisanal um movement aesthetic um because carol was all about uh the uniform right um you know which is this sort of which is rooted in tailoring um and carpe diem was um also rooted in the uniform but but workers uniform yeah 
Um, and so it wasn't so much about tailoring. And I just sort of liked this idea that a, 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 a menswear designer could take that aesthetic and, and take it a step further. Mm-hmm. Um, very intriguing. Also, too, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, all the great designers sort of create a little world around what they do. Yeah. And, and both Carol and Carpe did that, you know, Carpe had that neon lit compound out there in Perugia, you know, all about that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so, um, yeah, so it was great. So it wasn't just like going to a showroom to, you know, buy some clothes. Um, you know, you were sort of immersed in this whole little universe, which was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's fair to say that at least in the United States, I think Atelier did more for those two brands than any other place. And again, like I said, like what we were doing for those brands on style zeitgeist in cyberspace, you were doing it mm-hmm. in retail space. And mm-hmm. we would often discuss like, oh, what's, what dropped at Atelier? Oh, I think they got a new Poel delivery and you know, people would like rush off and like, you know, you were selling out of that stuff in days or some of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was astonished. You yeah. know, I was astonished. I mean, I expected it to, um, I expected it to sell. Obviously I believed in it, but I just didn't expect the, the sort of mania that yeah. sort of followed along with that. And honestly, Eugene, I think that that really had a lot to do with, with you. Seriously. You know, I think, I think that you created that, that buzz where people could actually talk about it, you know, and people could also um, uh, realize that there was, yeah, that there was a community around it. Yeah. And it's incredible to me back then, just these passionate debates we'd get into about what kind of seams there were on the jacket. <laughs> uh, but, but I love that. And to me, that kind of attention, bordering on obsession, really, to be honest, I feel we kind of lost that in 2020 mm. when everything mm-hmm. is size of, you know, two by two inch square on Instagram. And, sure, uh, sure. You know, we you, you lived it, I lived it in my own way as a fan um and then you know so so that whole thing was oh by the way i never asked you how come uh, i imagine you wanted helmut langer earlier or did you not or are you kidding me of course <laughs> of course so um uh just to make this as as short as possible we actually finally secured him um it was a battle and mr lang himself walked down to the store took a look at us from the outside and canceled the order um, after we, we secured it. And I think there was a, I think there were two reasons for that. Um, I think uh, we were too close to the store itself in mm-hmm. Soho. And I think that um, Mr. Lang probably saw us as being part, he didn't want to be part of a ghetto. <laughs> oh, really? I think so. Now, I mean, are you, listen, this, this is pure, you know, speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I saw him walk up to the front of the store. He peered into the window, turned around, and he left. Mm. 
Well, Crosby Street in 2002 was not Crosby Street in 2020. There were no fancy hotels. There was like garbage bags strewn along from, because it was like back door of Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, I mean, we were across the street from a methadone clinic. Right, yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't think there is a secret. It's funny, like for all the now praises have, you know, heaped on Helmut Lang and all the kids who weren't there, like trying to buy into the whole thing because that before because they saw it on Kanye West or whatnot. Uh, you know, people don't know that he could be a very prickly character. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. You know, we 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 also tried to to get um, Margiela too, and um, and in this case, it, it was I was playing hardball because um, I wanted uh, artisanal exclusively. I didn't want anything else. Hmm. And um, I don't think that they were ever faced with that kind of proposition before. Right. And so we went to, I think it was three information meetings, hmm. you know, where they tried to sell us, you know, the, the, the commercial brand. And I sort of held my ground and said, no, it's going to be artisanal or nothing. And yeah, the, the talk sort of fell through. <laughs> and Another part, you know, another thing with what another designer who we must talk about, I think, because who we did our own thing for in tandem, but who was rising meteorically and sort of became the center of the avant garde. Uh, between us, I hate the word, but I, yeah, can't find a, but I can't find a substitute. So let's just. Let's just keep it at that. Children, fine. Uh, it, it's Rick Owens, right? I mean, we got to yeah. talk about Rick. Uh, sure, sure. To, to, you know, tell me about Rick, how he walked into your life, walked into yeah. life of Atelier, and what was it about? What was so special and magical about him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> interesting story. So, um. I was fully aware of Rick's work way before he showed. And, um, and it had to do with um, the, uh, his work was often featured in some of the editorial work of the stylist Pano Sipanis, mm -hmm. who is the stylist that works with him to this day. Yeah. And so um, I was a huge fan of his work. I also want to just sort of uh, put out there that um, there were two stylists who were very instrumental in the, the look of Atelier. And one is, is Panos, I would say from 2002 until about 2008. And then after that, it's Samuel Drira from Ensemble, which was a completely different aesthetic than, um, than Panos. But anyway, uh, uh, so I saw Rick's name constantly in magazines like The Face, ID, um, Dutch Magazine. Mm -hmm. and, um, and usually because of Panos' work, Rick's clothes would be obscured because, you know, there would be 14 jackets laid on top of 13 skirts. <laughs> and, you know, I wouldn't um, and a spike belt around that. So I wouldn't really be able to tell what the garment was. 
But occasionally, you know, one of his pieces would come shining through. And I could see that this was someone who had, you know, a very um, uh, distinct point of view. Let's put it that way. So right after we opened Atelier, uh, Constantine was in uh, Los Angeles and uh, he was at Maxfield. And he said, he called and he said, you know, Carlo, I saw the work of this designer whose work was very, very interesting. And I think that you might like it. And I said, who is it? And he said, Rick Owens. And I, I was like, oh, really? I was like, you have to bring something to me. Just buy something for me and bring it to me. He said, but it's, it's, it's all women. So I was like, just buy something that you think that would fit me. Mm-hmm. So he brought back a uh, gray washed wool cap sleeve t-shirt. And I wore that t-shirt until the underarms turned green. I mean, really, it was like, you know, it became, it was my favorite summer t-shirt. So um, Vogue released the calendar uh, and he was, Rick was going to be the guest, uh, one of the guests. Um, uh, they sponsored his first show. Yeah. And um, I got the information from Vogue. Uh, of how to contact them. And I spoke with the, uh, the showroom distribution person and he invited us to the first show. I forget where it was, um, but it was packed to the rafters. And uh, I fell in love with what I saw. I thought it was just incredible. The first two seasons, so for fall 2002 and for spring 2003, we weren't allowed to buy the collection because uh, there was an exclusive at Barney's. Um, But from fall 2003 onward, we bought the collection. And yeah, I think think we, at the time, we became his biggest menswear account. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think what sort of helped to push Um, his name here in New York was the fact that we were wearing it. You know, it wasn't just um, something that was hanging on the, the rack, you know, Um, we, we really believed in it and yeah, we pushed it. We thought it was great stuff. I still think he's great. I think he's a fucking genius. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the, and the thing is back then you had to wear it because back then it was way more, way less structural. It was all very drippy kind of. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there were so many times where I would see it on the hanger and I thought, this is interesting, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Take it off the hanger, put it on, completely transformed. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. garment completely transformed and I am completely transformed. And that was his genius. Yeah. Um, he understood how to do shape without structure. Yeah. It's, um, it's a bit Armani when you think about it. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Taking, taking out the structure and yet making it so it transforms on your body and mm-hmm. for, takes form on your body, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was, I love that stuff. And, and I have a feeling again, 
I have a feeling that's why more than one garment I picked picked up was on clearance sale because probably people mm-hmm. would just look at the hanger and be like, well, okay, and keep walking. Mm-hmm. And you had mm-hmm. to know the secret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there, there, were, there were very few um, uh, designers that were sort of working in that kind of uh, area of softness, you know. Um, but again, let's let's you know be clear. It was a kind of you know structureless structurelessness that also had shape. Yeah, and it and it would it's easy to miss. Yeah, yeah. I never forget a friend of mine said about Rick. It's like there there is a designer who would put you in cotton jersey and denim, and you'd be the coolest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there was something that part was a little bit like carpet diem. You know, there's there's this dirt and grime and grit to it, but once you're in it, like it's the fucking bomb. For sure, for sure. And you know, once again, you know, um, you know, it was kind of the perfect storm because all of these things were happening at the same time, and um, uh, uh, you know, I happened to be able to um see it see it all mm-hmm. and and put it all together um yeah and so and then you ended up opening the first recoins boutique in new york with him how, how did that come about uh they approached us um i think it probably had to do with the fact that we were doing kind of a booming business with the menswear um, and, um, I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, his partners could see that, you know, we were, um, super enthused, uh, by Rick's work, um, and that we also shared a similar sensibility, you know, there was a kind of, like you talked about that kind of grit, but mixed with a kind of rock and roll glamour. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, an, um, they approached us and, Come on, there was no way we were going to say no to that opportunity. You know, it was you know on some levels it was like a dream come true for me, really, because I I I, I sort of had to pinch myself in disbelief because, you know, he really was my favorite designer at that time, yeah. and to be able to work with him was, I mean, it was a dream come true. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it felt it felt very very special. I was, um, yeah, it's a very um, very special moment in my life. And also it allowed you to, again, double in women's wear, right? Because uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think people know that for the first year, Atelier carried both men's and women's, just the women's didn't really take off, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, I learned a lot uh, about that. Um, You know, I I want to uh, be clear that, you know, Atelier was not a straight shot. You know, there there was definitely some waffling going on there. You know, there there were definitely (laughs) some things, waffling and wobbles, (laughs) um, that um, before it found its feet, you know. But but, I mean, that's like with anything, you know, you you, you start with something and then you you have to acclimate. Well, women's was one of those things that we had to acclimate. Um, I went in way too enthusiastically. Um, Mm. I sort of... um, um, overestimated that what, what women would want. Um, it was it was a learning lesson. Um, really, the only brand that we had any sort of success with um, with women's was a uh, was Andy Mullenmeister. Yeah, um, I think I bought that in a way that that women could relate to, 
um, because I had a, um, a real affinity for her, her work. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. You know, after we stopped carrying women's, um, we didn't really lose a lot of our women clients. You know, it, it was always very small and some of them didn't want us to carry women's anyway, because I always toured with that idea of going back mm-hmm. to buy women's yeah. again. And they didn't like that. They, they right. said, you know, just continue to buy what you're buying and buy an extra small and we'll buy into it. So I just, you know, left them with that. Um, Getting into women's wear um, with Rick again was was great because I I got to um, work with that again and become familiar with it again. Because, you know, women's wear is a completely different proposition. You know, it's a much broader in scale. Right. And uh, and much more sophisticated and a lot more complex. Um, so, um, yeah, I sort of cut my teeth uh, mm-hmm. with with that again. And it, and it was great. I mean, again, what a great designer to do that with. Yeah. 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 Can't can't think of a better one, to be honest. Um, and now we're like fast forwarding to. What is it, 2008, 2009 or so? We have, uh, at this point, I think, Atelier, maybe moving to the Hudson Street location. Yeah, we moved there in 2008. 2008. You get, also remember, you starting going heavy into Japanese designers, which I imagine Mm -hmm. you wanted to do all along, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember you had number nine. Mm-hmm. On cover, um, and you had Yoji and Have you calm for like calm. a minute yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, just 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 to clarify, you know, we had all of those brands when we were on Crosby Street too. That's right, you did, did yeah. you? Yeah, I yeah, know, yeah. yeah. We, had, we, had, we had number nine. We had Undercover. Uh, I think we were carrying Undercover since two thousand five. Okay, we, yeah. we 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 got uh, Yoji in two thousand six. So we had all of those brands before um, we okay. moved to Crosby. And that was one of the reasons why we moved to Crosby, because we were bursting at the seams. Right, yeah, because it, it was a small store, yeah. you know, compared to... And so, yeah, there was a, t- time uh, to grow and to move. And then something happens uh, is that basically Carpe Diem stops. Mm-hmm. And you have this diaspora, this carpet DM diaspora, where like basically like everyone who worked there, from you know head of design to the janitor, uh, like starts their own brand, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know they 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 all come to you. You know we're talking like we am a cross and label and mm-hmm. construction and Augusta mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. Guidi Luminatumbra. So mm-hmm. now you have to. What did you think? I, I, I thought it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. I really did. Okay, so first of all, uh, I was devastated when, when, when Carpe uh, uh, stopped um, because uh, a, it left a void. And then really quickly, that, that void was filled with all of the people who worked at... Um, Carpe Diem. 
So it was great. Uh, I think the first one out of the gate was uh, M.A. Cross. Mm-hmm. And it was, all, it was only leather goods. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was only bags. Um, super cute. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, Mr. Amade there with, with, with his um, uh, ink pen and uh, carbon paper. Yeah. And, I, and I think someone had to go in and say, uh, you know, this computer, you can actually do this. Like, you know, <laughs> and it was, all, it was all very, you know, yeah. charming. Yeah. Uh, but he was the first one out of the gate. And um, those, those bags and those wallets just flew off of the shelves. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we could not keep them in stock. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, then there was a um, label under construction. And Augusta, who started with uh, shoes, the artisanal shoes, and this idea of the um, uh, producing a shoe and then treating it after it's produced. Mm-hmm. Okay, obviously, you know, Carol had been doing the same thing and Coffee yeah, had been yeah. doing it as well, but he sort of brought it to, you know, a different level, uh, uh, level and um, he decided to expand the clothing. So it was sort of a, it was sort of a glorious time. Guidi, of course, you know, who, yeah. you know, we collaborated with and um, did installations with and yeah, lots of yeah. fun. Great yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, because that, you know, the whole artisanal side went from really two, three brands to a movement, you know, we, we, yeah. we did witness a birth of a movement uh, that's kind of dying down by now, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I know we've talked about it, but to me, it seems one of the, yeah, go, go on. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, there, you know, there's several reasons for it, but I think that we consume fashion in a very different way today. Yeah. Than we did then, you know. We have to remember that, you know, um, it was 2008 was was the year where it sort of became official that you know fashion has joined the world of digital, mm-hmm. and I think that sort of uh, amped up uh, uh, with with the rise of Instagram. You know, it, it's it's hard to sell something as subtle as um, Carpe Diem on Instagram. Yeah. You know, um, it, 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 you know, the, um, the, the, the subtleties don't translate well. Yeah. And these brands, you know, for better or for worse, were quite insular. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that that's really the page that we're on today, too. I think we're yeah. in an era of, you know. Oversharing. Oversharing, you know, <laughs> um, um, um very um, aggressive uh, self-promotion. And I think that, you know, a lot of these uh, artisanal designers, whilst not um, uh, describing them this in a very derogatory way, you know, they're artisans and there's a certain kind of, you know, mindset that goes along with that. I mean, th- th- these are people that are happier in the studios as opposed to, you know, sure. sharing their spaghetti meal on Instagram. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, um, that's part of the reason why um, uh, there was sort of a decline with that. You know, mm. it, it, it's not really conducive to the digital era. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I imagine also some part of it, and of course we know at the end of the day, the consumer makes the decision, but I think some part of it is that there aren't really stores except maybe, you know, like there are in Paris and like Lyft in Tokyo that can do justice in representing those brands. And That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, <clears throat> um, and you have to remember that, um, you know, when, when the buyer is also the store owner, that's usually when you get a very special point of view. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes um, about fulfilling a brief and uh, turning a profit. Yeah. yeah. You know, of course, we all want, want to turn a profit. I mean, sure. Atelier was not, you know, it wasn't a charity. You know, yeah. we, it was <laughs> definitely a, a business uh, proposition. But I was also willing to wait and to nurture yeah. You know, it didn't have to happen overnight. Right. And um, and of course, you know, there were certain brands that, you know, I brought in, which I knew wouldn't probably wouldn't sell. But I thought and even in terms of certain things, certain items from certain brands I would bring in, which I thought would have a very high probability of not selling. But it was sort of more of an image piece. You know, mm-hmm. to show you know what the designer can do, so. right? Yeah, it's it's funny that Carol Christian Paul. It's fascinating to me that Carol Christian Paul sort of survived all of that and had like his own mythology sort of propagate in the digital world now mm-hmm. on Instagram. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a reason for it because he shuts the fuck up. That's why <laughs> yeah. you, you, don't, you don't see him. You don't hear him. And so other people do the talking. Yeah. And, yeah it's the other and, and his work is incredibly strong. Yeah. Yeah. His work is incredibly strong, but you know, for a designer who hasn't done a collection for like in 10 years or something, I, I, and who like keeps regurgitating the same stuff and you know through a handful of boutique and like all these children who wore you know CDG play yesterday and Supreme <sighs> and they're wearing Rick today and tomorrow like they've reached they think like oh we've reached the pinnacle because uh, <laughs> we got this uh, you know Santa Claus fashion Santa Claus hammering away in Milano somewhere <laughs> uh, doing this. Uh, stuff and it, it's really fascinating how some of these mythologies like take on a life of its own and just mm-hmm. sort of self-propagate mm-hmm. uh, and yeah in a way it's sweet you know there's this new generations that because i think you do feel the, that 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 it's, that it's yours when you discover something like that you kind of like oh, you have that feeling sense of ownership like this is something truly special in a, yeah because you discovered it yeah because you, you discovered know you discovered it, it. and that, that that makes it a lot more personal uh there is there's something to be said about you know the cult of uh, invisibility and silence yeah and um um yeah, Carol absolutely possesses that. I would, I would really like to see him return. Um, yeah, me too. And because um, it would be interesting to see what his approach would be today. Fashion has changed so much since then. Yeah, and I would really like to see his uh, his take. Um, yeah. yeah. And so another 
designer who is in that realm is Paul Harden, but he mm-hmm. never entered the Atelier universe. Mm-hmm. So why? Not not for lack of trying. Um, so they they had a, a policy uh, in place that they would only sell. I think they would only have more than uh, no more than two hundred. Uh, I mean. 20 doors. I think he had a very small team and he wanted to keep it very tight and very focused. Mm-hmm. So um, they appreciated what we did. Obviously, I appreciated what they, what they did, but they said no every time that they, they simply weren't expanding. Okay. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we, we respected that. Yeah, yeah, you got to respect mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. For myself, uh, like I did have a fascination with Paul Harden. Uh, for for a minute there i mean that minute lasted maybe two years and i distinctly remember i think walking into leclerc and trying this you know this classic blazer and again feeling absolutely transformed wearing it um and so i brought that to style zeitgeist and like you know uh blew the shit out of it with my with my praises and that took on and that you know not that i'm taking credit uh harden Mm -hmm. has always had uh a following but but mostly like older uh older people uh a lot of older artists Mm -hmm. and what i found hilarious about paul harden is like whenever you met someone who was older and an artist and you and you were like oh it's a nice Paul Harden jacket they would just be like they wouldn't have they, they'd have none of it they'd be like I'm not into fashion I don't mm. know what you're talking about mm-hmm. I don't know if mm-hmm. I told you I once interviewed Wim Wenders the director no and and he was wearing a Paul Harden blazer and I complimented him on it and he just gave me like one of the dirtiest looks like <laughs> don't you dare anyone that I dropped a couple of grand on a blazer because it looks like I'm a peasant and I want it to look that way because artists don't shop. <laughs> artists don't buy fashion. <laughs> yeah, you, you see that sort of aesthetic was something that, that had to be arrived at. It, it really did because you know it, it 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 only existed because of the the glossy facade of fashion, you know, where everything is sort of like you know sleek and shiny and um, you know um, you know careful and precious, and um, you know for someone to invest in a garment that looks like it's been you know rolled over by a truck. Um, says you know it um there's a certain sensibility you have to go through fashion first in order to arrive there it's not a place where you start um although you know we that that may all be changing now because i think that you know with with um, a lot of information being everywhere all the time that it's quite easy to, to do that now to just sort of dive in at the top end yeah 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 and harden definitely is one of those designers and i mean i must say like i lost interest pretty fast because i realized it's the same fucking thing with different fabric on it like season after season and Mm -hmm. i thought okay i get that and i appreciate that but at the end of the day i am into fashion 
mm-hmm. and fashion changes. And mm-hmm. I'm all down for, and as you know, I think, and I think we both absolutely love designers who go narrow but deep mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, we're going to do cowboys one season and astronauts the next. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but there I lost interest like quite quickly. And I thought, mm-hmm. like, okay, well, I got one jacket. Then I got two jackets and then I was like, well, I don't need a third one. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like some of these, you know, artisanal designers have that problem that it's sort of like they make the uniform. And once you get the uniform, unless you're diehard, hardcore fan, then there's not a lot of them out there. Like, what do you, you know, what, what do you do? Um, I have to be a little careful here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't be. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I think that some of those artisanal designers, um, weren't fully aware that they were actually operating within a system called fashion. Or they thought very, I'm not saying that they thought that they were artists, but they really fought against this uh, the the more superficial rapid changeable aspect of fashion and um it worked against them yeah you know there wasn't enough change you know i, I would definitely describe myself you know as a fashion person you know i really like this kind of you know the, the changeable nature, you know, the aspect of, of it being one way <clears throat> this period, and then it's another way the next period, you know, the, the, the endless parade. Um, but that can be annoying to some people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can certainly understand that. But if you're going to get into this business, I think that you need to understand that that's what it's all about. Yeah. You know, and that you can't cling too deeply because if you do, you will become outmoded. OK, great. It's it's you should always keep your core and, and build on that. But, um, you know, this is about uh, a series of uh, dazzling looks, you know, and, um, you know, bright sparks and fireworks in the sky yeah. and they explode and then the little stars come down to the ground and then you have to shoot another one up into yeah. the sky, you know? So, yeah. Uh, how did you, you know, were you, was that in the back of your mind as Atelier continued? Like, were mm-hmm. you worried at all? Like, mm-hmm. okay, we have to sell very similar things season after season. So, so, um, there was a point around 2008 when, when we moved to Hudson Street that I, I became sort of um, uh, bored with the overall aesthetic. I thought that it had become fossilized and that um, the changes that were going on were, were, were um, superficial and timid. Mm-hmm. And basically it had to do with... Um, the this kind of uh skinny mini aesthetic that was happening at the time which you know was started by raff in the mid-90s and then eddie sort of brought it to the masses but everything being really sort of close and fitted to the body 
there was that. And then it was also that kind of, um, you know, that kind of dirtier, rougher elements. And I uh, felt that it was time for uh, a change. I sort of became a little bit bored with that. And so I started to um, explore designers that had um, more fluidity, more volume. And the results from that was mixed. I had, I had, I had, uh, there, there was really some pushback, um, yeah. from the, the, the clients that we had, um, uh, that we had cultivated. Um, this is sort of like that period where, you know, it was like Damir Doma and where things mm-hmm. became sort of like you know, loose and fluid and, you know, a lot of space. I've sort yeah. of reassessed my feeling about uh, that kind of look. Um, now, uh, especially when it comes to menswear, is that I, I don't really think that it's conducive to menswear, quite honestly, because, um, well, that's, we can have that conversation at a, at a different date. But um, at the time, it seemed very, very, very refreshing. And, uh, um, um, but the results were, were mixed. Mm. Um, um, you know, there was a, there was a, a kind of built-in laddishness that went along with that look too. You know, it was sort of very rough, very, you know, black leather, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, quite dude, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, this kind of soft, fluid, buttonless, structureless, kind of thing was sort of met with a, you know, what the fuck is that kind of thing? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, so. between us and a thousand listeners, <laughs> I, I can tell you <laughs> that, that I was, as a client, I was also taken aback a bit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. hmm, I don't know how many men dress that way now, you know, and, and, okay, this is a very personal reaction, uh, but I was, like I was thinking, I literally was getting rid of getting rid of all my gabardine, you know, and thinking that I, I can't really round around New York City, you know, it, like in the flowing Yoji dress slash coat slash blazer. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. I, I like I need a leather, I need a pair of jeans and a pair of like boots to beat the concrete mm-hmm. and sort of have my own like don't fuck with me armor. Like I don't want to be solicited kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, th- there was that moment. And I th- mm-hmm. but I think also that that moment, I think, also kind of passed too. Now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, you know, it was. Interesting to see, you know, some of the, um, um, you know, some of the major players on the fashion scene also feel the same way that I felt. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't, um, I don't think I was feeling that the, the, the need for change. I don't think I was alone in feeling that, mm. you know, um, you know, Rick had a very sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, a kind of a genderless fluid moment. That happened at the same time. Stefano Pallotti at uh, Yves Saint Laurent was, was doing the same thing. Chris Van Asch at Dior, 
your arm started to do this. So it was a thing that was happening, you know, that yeah. this kind of a movement away from that kind of super, you know, um, you know, pencil, skinny, mini thing. You know, again, I said it, it, it sort of became um, fossilized. But what was um, the question that I think that was was overlooked is precisely the one that you just talked about was, you know, how do clothes actually work right. for you as a man? You know, yeah. and see that was one of the things I was going to say earlier was was the reason why I think that um, that particular aesthetic didn't really. Um, well, I don't want to say last for too long because it did last for a while, but why yeah. it also too faded away was because, <clears throat> you know, um, you know, I can remember uh, wearing a lot of that stuff, and you know, in winter when you know the wind would blow, I would have to like you know redress myself right because the wind would take everything apart and yeah. i thought this is no way for a man to navigate the city <laughs> yeah yeah you, you can't be yeah. like on 12th avenue and 24th street <laughs> you know retying my coat again you know you'd be I mean? like superman with the <laughs> <laughs> exactly you know it, it just got to become you know it, it, it became um more work than it, it should have been So, you know, and it was, but, you know, I had to sort of go through that in order to um, understand some things about, about garments and in particular about menswear mm. is that, you know, buttons exist for a reason, right. you know, you know and, and, the, and that lapels are actually there because they actually anchor the coat. Yeah. You know, yeah. they actually anchor the jacket. It, it, it makes it, you know, th these are functional pieces. I mean, listen, I, of course, you know, I've, I've done considerable more research, you know, into the history of menswear, you know, cost the, the uniform. And so I know a lot more about it now, but at the time it was just sort of enthralled by, <laughs> yeah. you know, by, by, by being this, you know, uh, fluid, gender non-conforming, blob. And, and look, I, I think it's super cool. And I think, What we're getting into now is, for me personally, uh, a really sad topic. Uh, and maybe you can bright my, brighten up my day or maybe we can commiserate. It's sort of, okay, how much can a store dictate as opposed to how much a designer can dictate and as opposed to like how much the consumer can dictate. And if the consumer dictates... Uh, And I feel like that's more and more, man, we're fucked because like what I see people wearing today, are like sweatpants and logo t-shirts. Mm -hmm. The consumer dictates today. Yeah. Unquestionably without a doubt. Um, do you remember um, where, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a survey on the business of fashion where it asked Who was the most important person in fashion? Was it the designer, the stylist, the photographer, or the model? And I think um, the, uh, the winner was the designer. And um, I was I was really surprised to, to read that. Mm. I, I don't think the designer is the most important person in fashion at all. 
quite honestly. And I I, I may get into really hot water for saying this. You know, (laughs) I think it's, um, I think, you know, if we're we're going to talk about, so if if we're talking about fashion in terms of the the system, uh, then I think the most important person in fashion is probably the stylist. Because you don't need a, a designer in order to create fashion. You don't. But you do need a stylist. Mm. To create um, a look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. You don't need a designer in order to do that. Um, but if we're going to talk about fashion in terms of, you know, fashion with a small F, then it's either the model or the photographer. Yeah. And when I talk about that, I mean... Um, the model being the person who is wearing the clothes mm-hmm. on Instagram right. and the photographer being the person who took the picture, which is usually the model. So, you know, if you have a, you know, an it girl posting a picture, a selfie of her with the latest handbag and it gets, you know, four gazillion likes and you have that same fashion company post a picture of that handbag and it gets half as many likes, who's more powerful? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so there, there you go. Yeah. You know, it's influence. You know, it's it's a popularity contest. Right. You know? And that's exactly. where we are today. Yeah. You know? But uh, listen, I don't I don't think that that's you, you, you know look, it's fashion after all, huh? And it does change. And mm. so this is one of those changes. Right. And we have to sort of roll along with that. You know, um, we can't cling to the past. That's not what no. fashion is all about. You know, and, you know, if fashion today is, is, is about, you know, an it girl in the pair of sweatpants, then that's what it's about. You know, I, I think it's our role as fashion people to find a way to make that uh, sweatpants and Uggs, you know, uh, desirable. <laughs> You yeah. know, or do something with it. I mean, you know, um, I don't think it's going away, though. I I don't either, unfortunately. I don't, like, people talk that, you know, this whole phenomenon of, you know, logo t-shirts and streetwear and casualization, continuous casualization of fashion now in form of everyone's wearing sweatpants will go away. But I don't think it will. I no. just, I, it's the lowest common denominator and that's, it's familiar mm-hmm. and the audience for fashion has changed. And I have an article coming out about that very soon, I hope. Um, and it went, I think from, and I think you're right. I think Atelier opened at the tail end of that in a way where, the core audience for fashion was just took more risks, was more daring, didn't necessarily want something familiar, but wanted to be wowed by the clothes and wanted to be challenged by the clothes. And now the audience for fashion is mass. And the mass wants the familiar. They want what they already have, but now maybe they have like 500 bucks to drop on a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. 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 For sure. Um, you know, if we're, if we're going to keep this conversation focused more on menswear, um, which I'd like to just for, yeah, for, yes, for right sure. now, 
um, <clears throat> I think this idea of the uh, the shock of the new um, is, if not completely dead, almost. Now, there are some real innovations that are happening in terms of design when it comes to sneakers. Mm-hmm. Um, where you do see the shock of the new. Um, but that's about it. Yeah. I think that there are a few, there are a handful of designers out there that are offering genuine design for menswear. Because let's face it, you know, changing a button on a blazer in menswear is a revolution. Okay? <laughs> yes. And so when designers actually offer design in menswear, uh, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a massive risk, commercial mm-hmm. risk. Um, and it's rare when you see those um, designs actually make, you know, um, make, reach the masses. Yeah. Um, you know, they are still sort of, in you know this kind of very rarefied codified little fashion bubble you know where a kind of you know an elite almost connoisseurship is taking place you can see it there would would be appreciated but those things don't really make it to broadway yeah you know and um whereas let's say you know back in let's say 1984 when you know calm and yoji both did Om Plus and Yoji Yamamoto his main line for Om, you know, it was definitely shock of the new. And everyone I know wanted to look like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, we saw it, you know, our eyes popped out of our skulls and we were trying to approximate the looks, mm-hmm. you know, on a thrift budget because, you know, we wanted to have that kind of, you know, that, that difference from what, what was out there, what our parents wore, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but let's see, you, you know, every, 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 um, for every action, usually there's a kind of a, yeah. a reaction. And for every culture, there is counterculture. Yes, so indeed. Hopefully there is enough of us out there who are still willing to take risks and buy something interesting and, or at least look at it and champion it and, uh, you know, make it challenging. So I guess my next question is, you know, I don't even know. Could you tell a story like Atelier today? You you could, you could, but it would be a different story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be a different story. And um, again, I think it, it has, it would, it would have to be, um, it would have to be personal. Yeah. You know, it w- there would have to be this idea where the owner and the buyer were either in total sync or the buyer was also the owner or the owner gave the buyer free reign. Mm. Um, because in order for something like that to happen, 
you know, it has to be something that is, um, yeah, it's an internal thing. It's not about, you know, um, uh, uh, it's not an overt commercial, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a few little things that are popping up here in New York right now that I've, I've seen. Uh, I can't remember the name. There's one in uh, the Lower East Side. And I think there's one in Midtown. And, the, and it's a, a shop with uh, two initials. I think it's YT, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, there, there are these little, these little personal projects that are popping up. And uh, yeah, it'll be nice to see if they take hold but they but they're not like atelier they're they're it's a completely different thing yeah yeah um and i think that's i think that's a great point because i think what what we both dealt with in our respective realms was very personal very emotional Mm-hmm. Uh, emotional 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 yeah and the point mm-hmm. i was trying to make like these are not just mere goods you know th- there is there is emotion tied up and there are values tied up from the designer side and i think those products seek the audience with the same values. And I think it's the shop owner's job. And that's, I think what you did so amazingly well at Atelier is to be the conduit for those Mm -hmm. values and really matching the makers with the final consumer through your own personal and emotional lens, you know, Mm -hmm. that speaks to me. And I hope that speaks to you too. So, you know, one of the things that um, I stressed with Atelier is that, you know, when we, what we do at Atelier is we talk about the clothes. We're not going to try to flatter you. We're not going to say, buy these jeans and it's going to make your ass look good. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was really talking about the garment. And, oh, okay, so, you know, not all the sales associates the people who sold the clothes at Atelier adhered to that strictly. You know, Jojo was was a master at flattering. <laughs> and that, that's why he could sell rings around me. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, it works, you know. But that's not what we wanted to do, you know. And that goes back to that personal thing. That goes back to that emotional thing, you know, where you talk about, you know, um, uh, the feeling, well, you can talk about the technique, of course, you know, the, the garment, you know, what goes into it, the, the materials and what happened, how does it fit? You know, I remember telling people that, you know, these, you know, these structured blistered lamb jackets by Rick Owens, you know, was, um, you know, jackets that really thinks that it's a sweater. You know, mm. that's what I would, would tell them. This jacket thinks that it's a sweater. Try it on and you'll see what I mean. And so, you know, it was that sort of technique. And that had a lot to do with the emotional aspect, you know, about the clothing, you know, how they made you, you feel, you know, the way they presented their shows, the type of models that they used, the, the music, the sort of the, the world that they created. And, um, yeah, it was a very sort of a, 
this was something that I tried to convey to the people that came into uh, the store. Also, too, um, I was genuinely interested in the people that shot there. Right. And that's you know? a aspect that cannot be underestimated. I mean, we've all made friends at Atelier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. through Atelier, you know, brought mm-hmm. people together. And I, and I still am friends with some of those people. Mm-hmm. And that is something, there is something to be said for that because it goes against the entire facile notion that fashion is just frivolous and it's all about the surface. Mm-hmm. And my point is, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't at Atelier. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Well, you know, we we all set we set out at the very beginning. You know, the whole idea was that it was meant to be more like a a, a salon, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, we actually sort of created that that little creative exchange, that little vibe there um, at the beginning. Um, yeah, it was about you know being sat on those uh, sofas there and just chatting, just chatting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And your parties were great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what? why did you finally walk away from Atelier? Like we all know Atelier still exists. Mm-hmm. You sold it. Mm-hmm. It's now, you know, a very different thing from what mm-hmm. you started. But yeah. why did you walk away finally? Okay. So uh, there were... Um, uh, so the, the, the principal reason was that we were being, um, we were basically being undersold. Um, you know, when when we moved uh, to Hudson Street, um, suddenly, you know, Atelier went from this kind of niche, culty thing to, and please don't think that I'm big headed for saying this, but it. Atelier sort of became a genre, you know, it became a, a, a way to sell clothes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there were a lot of people that walked in, scooped up ideas and then imp- imp- planted them and imported them elsewhere. Okay, great. I mean, on some levels, it's, you know, quite flattering. Sure. Um, um, but it's not when they can undersell us by, by one third, right? Right. right. <laughs> you know, yeah. because you know some of these places were um, based in Europe, so th- they didn't have to uh, do the customs and duties and you know shipping and all this other stuff. You know, sort of produced in Italy and 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 um, and sold in Italy. I'm just using that as an example. Or, mm-hmm. or within the EU, we were also pretty. Uh, uh, slow uh, and late to the digital game. Um, you know, I can, I, looking back, I can see that that was, um, uh, that that could have been done much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it also started to become heavy. Um, you know, there was a, um, It was uh, it, it felt daunting at time, knowing that I was sort of responsible for, you know, 
the people that worked with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was the cause of a, a lot of sleepless nights. You know, um, I didn't want uh, to sell Atelier um, because we were just going to close it and then we had, we, we, mm-hmm. we got a buyer. And so we were lucky. I mean, I, I think that that speaks to, um, you know, to what we created that someone felt it fit to purchase. Right. Um, um, but it was definitely a struggle, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, towards the end. And, um, you know, I, I just, I felt, um, yeah, I felt very responsible for the people I was working with. Yeah. It's very tough. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are also some other things here too, you know, I want, I want to touch on, you know, um, you know, some of the lessons that I, I learned from my experience there was that you don't treat your business like art. And that's, and that's exactly what I did. I, I was, I was quite precious about Atelier. Mm-hmm. You know, there were, there was, um, uh, so we sold it in 2013 in 2011 was the first year that we didn't turn a profit. And Constantine said, you know, so what do you want to do about this? We didn't turn a profit. And I said, okay, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I am going to make Atelier the most glamorous, sumptuous, stylish, chicest thing I can possibly make it in terms of an online presence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would go to Hudson's newsstand and buy, you know, the latest issue of Interview and Arena on Plus and the Wumo Vogue. And I would bring it back to the photographer that we were working with at the time. And I said, look, we're going to make it look just like that. I was benchmarking basically. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, <clears throat> You know, the results didn't look like Craig McDean, but they were, they came pretty close for mm-hmm. a an independent boutique. You know, yeah. and you know there was a, the last two years of Atelier, we never looked better in terms of presentation. I mean, we put a lot of energy and a mm-hmm. lot of effort and a lot of money into the way we presented ourselves online. Yeah. That's a very long-winded way of saying high production values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was determined to seduce the client back, um, that they would ignore that they could get something for less than a third of a price right. and come back to us. Uh, well, obviously, that didn't work. You know, yeah. at, the end, at the end of the day, you know, I think what, what the customer wants is, um, is, um, is the garment, you know, the, right. the, the item, you know, and, and to hell with, with all of this, you know, glossy packaging that, that, that goes along with that. Um, now, so that was one aspect. The other aspect is, and, you know, I've never said this before. Uh, uh, I've never said it out loud anyway, is that, you know, we could have turned that ship around 
Edmonton. Mm-hmm. We could have done that, but it would, would have required a drastic restructuring. Okay. You know, which basically meant that, you know, we, we would have fired every single person that we were working there and just got people that were either working as interns or minimum wage. Right. Okay. We could, we could have cut that down. I could have done the new way of production values, which is, you know, a pair of boots come in. I, I stick it on a chair, take a picture with it on an iPhone, pop it online and say, you know, $550, you yeah. know, uh, because it's about the garment, you know, uh, oh. So I could have done that. It would have taken a complete reduction of the the spirit, the signature, but I refused. And the reason why I refused was because I had worked so hard to get it to look like that. that I thought, you know what? If if it means that I have to tear this down in order to build it back up again, fuck it. Let's just let it go. Let's just let it go, you know? And... um, that was a very tough decision. I let a lot of people down. Um, and um, I have about 17 billion regrets. <laughs> um, um, but uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's all over now. You know, yeah. I can smile about it now, but at the time it was terrible. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I mean, listen, it's your baby and yeah. I mean, having a baby of my own, I know what it's like to struggle and and I know what it's like to be undercut too, you know, and and, uh, and, and that is the sad part, but uh, you can also understand the consumer's self-interest, you know. And oh, of it's course. Not, it's Come on. not, it's a $500 difference between buying a jacket here and there, it's of course, it's uh, you, you want to support, but sometimes it's also five hundred dollars. I, I remember at one point being um, really sort of uh, uh, bitter about that. Yeah, um, but I don't. I, yeah, not, not, I completely understand. Yeah, no, but I but I get that too because you have built something so iconic, and you have been instrumental in creating that aesthetic and shaping that world uh, that someone could open some fucking warehouse in Berlin and sell the same, (laughs) sell the same clothes, you know, like you said, for 30% less and sort of ride your coattails on that. And yeah, but you know what? I'll say this. There are a lot of people who remember Atelier still mm-hmm. and speak fondly of it. And you've created something absolutely iconic. And I know I don't have to tell you that, but you should be proud of that. It's, it's, it's incredible. Well, well, well I, I'll tell you this. Uh, well, thank you, Eugene. That was, that's, that's very sweet to say. I wasn't really fully aware of what Atelier meant to people until I made the announcement that we were closing. And it was um, shocking, actually shocking, because, you know, I knew people liked what we did. I knew that people connected with what we did, but I didn't, I didn't know that there was such a deep 
how deeply it resonated with a lot of people. I just wasn't aware of it. Mm. And, and it came from people that, you know, I thought, really? I mean, you were always just kind of hanging out there in the corner and, you know, you didn't really say much. And, you know, and then I would get these emails and it would be, you know, five paragraphs long saying like just what this, it was unbelievably touching. And not many stores can say that. Not, not many store owners can say that. And that, that's something to me. Fantastic. Uh, anything else should, we should address? Um, uh, so honestly, <laughs> and I'm probably going to make a lot of people angry here. Yeah, um, do it, do it. That's all we're, it. That's what we're all about. <laughs> it, 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 it's personal, actually. It's totally personal. You know, in a way, um, Atelier was a detour for me. It really was. Um, um, I helped, it, it helped to sharpen certain sensibilities, but it also helped to clarify exactly what's at the core of my being. And that's basically, albeit however, you know, filthy this word might be, which is a stylist. You know, I'm, I'm basically a person that really enjoys playing with clothing. And, um, you know, it was something that I considered myself to be before I started Atelier, and it became really manifest afterwards. You know, um, you put me in a room full of clothing, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy, you know. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I could, I could play with clothes all day long. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the, the history of clothing, um, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, the story of fashion, um, all of that stuff. And, um, um, you know, looking back, it seems like, you know, Atelier was sort of, whilst it was fun and, 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 and very exciting, um, it seemed like it was this thing that I sort of jumped on uh, when I was really going in another direction. This thing sort of happened and I sort of, which was Atelier, and I sort of made that happen. And then I went back to what it was that was the initial spark of why I became interested in fashion to begin with, mm. you know, was because it was through the work of stylists, you know, it's right. when I saw you know, that I actually became aware that there was an occupation that, you know, one could actually make a living doing that. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, as soon as I became aware of the, the job, I thought that's, that's what I'm going to, that's who I am. That's what I'm going to do. And so Atelier was a little bit of a deviation, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but, um, and which is what you're doing now. Now you're styling. That, that yeah, is yeah, your... yeah. Con- yeah. More, more consulting than styling. But mm-hmm. con- consulting is also styling too. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah. But now that you say that, you could absolutely, totally see that in Atelier. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what I think gave it strength. Because 100%. it's that kind of curation, which I didn't realize until I 
and this is important. Uh, I didn't realize that until I started going to fashion shows in Paris and started going into showrooms and I'd walk into the Enzimilista showroom and then I'd be like, holy shit, like this is amazing. Where is all that? Where are all that clothes? Where do mm-hmm. they end up? Why don't I see them in stores? Mm-hmm. I see all these incredible clothes at the showroom and they just don't end up in stores, especially not in American stores who mm-hmm. are incredibly safe and are mm-hmm. still incredibly safe mm-hmm. at the time by and large. And I think it's that your, you know, your preoccupation with styling you know, which is editing, picking, was that what, what made Atelier so special? Uh, uh, and taking risks, and you taking know, risks. and taking risks and, and, um, and uh, including things that um, encapsulate the spirit of the brand, basically image pieces, pieces where I knew that this is probably not going to sell, until it's on sale, very much on sale, because it's a very di- difficult piece. But it's also a very strong piece. And it, it also says a lot about that designer. And so, therefore, we should bring it in. So, yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Thank you, Carlos, so much. And again, everyone, this is absolutely not the last time you're going to hear Carlo on this podcast because. We've had so many conversations about fashion with you uh, over the years of our friendship, and we, we're gonna we're gonna make them public because they're really worth uh, sharing with other people. Thank you, Carlo. Until the next time. Always a pleasure, Eugene. Thanks for having me. Sure. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Styles I Guess podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening.